0: Listening to the Sermon Podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about twenty minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. So, uh, my dear friend Ed Lehman always challenged me when I was reading scripture to not just think about the words that were in front of me, but who the author was talking to and kind of where they were at. And I know Dan's challenges in this series to think about the metaphors of, of Christ on the cross. Um, I was reading this last night, and um, I was reading the, the uh, chapter and verse before it. And you know clearly, Philippians was Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Um, I didn't remember this, but the Philippians were under great persecution for their faith in Christ. This would have been in the difficult times in the beginning when the churches would have been being persecuted. And uh, I had also forgotten that Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And in the the verse right before this, Paul is struggling with whether he wants to live or, or die, to die so he can go and be with Christ whom he loved, and worshiped, or to continue living to pass, pass the message of Christ's love on. So that's the context of this chapter, and I'm intrigued by where Dan's going to go. Please hear these words from Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: Thank you, Kurt. Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing with the time change this morning? Are we all, do we feel adjusted yet? Are we, are we there? Have we caught up? Yeah. I love uh, Spring Forward is, is sort of this, this communal experience where we're all sleep-deprived by one hour. Really, I feel, I feel closer to you all because of that. <clears throat> um, I used to hate losing an hour of sleep in the spring, and I used to love uh, uh, fall back when we, when we gain an hour in the fall. But uh, being a parent of young kids has completely inverted that on me. Um, for the rest of the world, fall back means that you get an extra hour of sleep. But for me, it just means that my kids are up an hour early for like a week and a half, which is <laughs> terrible. Um, because, you know, their little bodies don't know about daylight savings time. They have no idea. Um, by contrast, though, spring forward now is amazing. Uh, our two-year-old son, Zeke, slept till almost 8 a.m. this morning, which is just incredible. That never happens. If, if only there was a way to keep his body from adjusting. You know, that would be, <clears throat> that'd be the trick. It's great to be together, it's great to be um, a little groggy and a little less sleep with you all. Uh, We are in the season of Lent, uh, which is this uh, season of preparation and reflection leading up to Holy Week and Easter, and we kicked off our Lenten teaching series last week, uh, which is called Metaphors of the Cross. Every week in this series, we're looking at a different metaphor that Christians have used throughout history um, to understand the cross and to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? How is it that Jesus' death on the cross saves us from sin and death? We kicked things off last week by looking at the idea, the metaphor of Jesus as a ransom, which is a very ancient way of looking at the cross Um, from the early, early days of the church. The ransom metaphor explains Jesus' death as a ransom that was paid by God to the devil in order to get the devil to release us from his grips. Um, If you missed that sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go online and check it out. Uh, We covered a lot of foundational stuff for this series, so you don't want to miss that. Now, a lot of the metaphors we're looking at over the next six weeks are very, very ancient and therefore very, very foreign to us and how we think about things in the world right now. And that also includes the metaphor we're talking about today, which is Jesus the victor. The fancy title for this way of viewing the cross, like in Latin, is Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ the victor. How many people could have guessed that? Maybe, yeah, a lot of you. We, see, you know Latin. You know this stuff. Um, but uh, Jesus the victor or Christus Victor is uh, another atonement theory from the earliest days of the church. It's basically what the ransom theory turned into over time. We touched on this a little bit last week. But the ransom metaphor has some flaws. Like, for one, it gives Satan way too much power. It almost presents God and the devil as sort of like rival deities. And that did not sit very well with some folks in the early church. And Jesus the victor, Christus victor, is what basically resulted from that. The idea with this metaphor is it basically downplays the whole ransom element while retaining the idea that the cross is Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. We find traces of Christus victor scattered all throughout the New Testament. Um, All the stuff we looked at last week with the ransom metaphor, all the places in the New Testament where Jesus is called a ransom, that still applies with this way of looking at the cross. But you also find these instances, especially in Paul's letters, where the cross is talked about as a sort of ironic victory. We find this in the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes, The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. There's this idea here that to most people, the cross looks like a defeat. It looks like losing. But to those who are in the know, to those who have encountered the risen Christ, we see the cross as the ultimate victory. The same idea gets picked up in our scripture reading for today, uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, where Paul here is talking about the importance of following Jesus. Kurt actually uh, situated it in context very nicely for us. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the middle of this letter, Paul breaks into poetry. And here's what we find. I'm going to reread the passage. "'Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, "'who, though he was in the form of God, "'did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited,' But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, To the glory of God the Father, first-century beat poetry, right in the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he was a poet and he didn't even know it. This poem captures really um, the essence of the Jesus the Victor metaphor. The first half of this poem, verses six through eight, roughly, focus on how Jesus emptied Himself. Jesus became less. He was equal with God, but he takes on human form. He takes on flesh and dwells among us in perfect love, in perfect humility, to the point that he humbles himself unto death. The world saw Jesus' humility as a weakness, and it killed him for it. But God had a different reaction, and that's what's captured in the second half of this poem. That's the contrast. Paul tells us that because of Jesus' perfect humility, the way he gave himself over, allowing himself to be killed by the very people he came to save, because of all that, God highly exalted him, giving him a name above all names, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see the paradox and the tension in this poem, kind of the contrast with the first half and the second half? Jesus humbles himself, so God exalts him. Jesus allows himself to be crushed and killed, so every knee bows to him. There's this idea that the cross is a defeat, but in God's hands it becomes the ultimate victory. Which, like, let's be honest, makes zero sense, right? Like, how can the cross be a victory? How can dying on the cross be anything other than losing? It makes no sense. If you didn't know any better, you might think that maybe Paul and the early Christians were in a state of denial. Because the very idea of the cross as a victory makes no sense unless we are super tuned in to the life and ministry of Jesus and the message that ran through all of it. The core of Jesus' teaching is what he called the good news of God's kingdom. When Jesus proclaimed the good news, when he preached the gospel, it was always the gospel of God's kingdom. God's kingdom has arrived on earth in Jesus. Now, we don't really know what it's like to live in a kingdom as modern Americans, it's a pretty foreign concept to us. Um, So, in past sermons, we've talked about the kingdom of God as God's reality. The world as it might look if God were fully in control. If heaven and earth were one. If everyone followed God rather than following ourselves. That's God's kingdom. God's reality. And what does Jesus tell us over and over again that the kingdom of God looks like? Well, in the kingdoms of this world, in reality as most people understand it, you look out for number one and forget about everyone. You fight and you push and you claw to get ahead, to be the best, to be number one, to have the newest, biggest, bestest, whatever, and forget about the rest. But in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. There's this reversal. The kingdoms of this world teach us to protect ourselves at all costs, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Adhere to our tribal identities. But in God's kingdom, we love our enemies. If you want to see the kingdom of God in action, look at Jesus' disciples. Among the 12 disciples, his closest followers, you have Matthew, who was a tax collector. tax collector is basically a sellout, someone who's working for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes from their own people. You've got Matthew in there, but you've also got Simon the Zealot was part of a political party, the Zealots, which was a violent, revolutionary party dedicated to the overthrowing of Rome. A tax collector and a zealot, breaking bread together in love. That's the kingdom of God. Today we might substitute in like an Israeli and a Palestinian, or a Democrat and a Republican, cat person and a dog person, right? (laughs) Enemies. (laughs) Enemies. Enemies who would give their lives for each other before they would ever take up the sword to kill. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus goes around for three years announcing this good news, proclaiming this vision, this upside-down kingdom where the poor are honored and the rich are humbled where widows and orphans are cared for, where saving your life means giving it away. And that vision of reality, that good news, is put to the ultimate test on the cross. As Jesus hangs on the cross, a crowd gathers. And the people in the crowd begin to mock Jesus. They challenge him to save himself. A lot of these people have probably heard about the the wild things, the miraculous stuff that Jesus has done. Some of them have probably even seen it, right? Healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. And so they challenge him to save himself. Call down your angels. Call to Elijah, maybe he'll help you. Jesus saved others, why can't he save himself? They're testing Jesus. They're mocking him, but they're also testing him. The crowd wants to see if Jesus will be true to his word. When push comes to shove, is he going to embody the kingdom of God? Or is he going to default to the kingdoms of this world? Will he actually practice what he preaches and lay down his life? Will he love his enemies to the point of death, even death On a cross? The cross is the world's way of testing whether or not the kingdom of God is legit. Does this way of living, this upside down kingdom, does it actually work or is it all bogus? The world is still asking that question, by the way. Only they're asking it of the church, they're asking it of us. Will we actually practice what we preach? Will we actually follow the way of Jesus? Will we take up our crosses? Will we love our enemies? Verdict's still out for some churches. But Jesus puts any doubts about himself to rest on the cross. With Jesus as the victor, the cross becomes a defeat that's also a victory, it's an execution. That's also a coronation ceremony. Think about it. What happens in a coronation ceremony? I know it's pretty foreign to us. We don't have kings. But how does a coronation ceremony go? Let's use our imaginations. It usually starts with an anointing. Expensive perfume, oil is used to anoint the new king, the new monarch. Then after you've been anointed with oil, they dress you in fine robes. maybe purple, maybe red. they present you to the crown or to the, to the crowd, as the new monarch. They put a crown on your head to signify you as king. And then once you've been crowned, they hold a parade. They march the new monarch through the city. Before all their adoring subjects, everyone comes out to pay respect, pay homage to the new king or queen. And the parade always ends on a hill, a high place, a mountain. Uh, back then, palaces, temples were usually built on hills. The idea was that you're closer to the gods. That's the, that's the idea. So the soldiers marched Jesus up a, up a hill. And then once you get to that high place, they put you on a throne, usually made of wood, some sort of exotic wood, maybe a cedar, maybe uh, adorned with gold or jewels. And then once the monarch has been enthroned, they always seat dignitaries with them, leaders, generals, respected people from the community, one on their right and one on their left. Jesus' execution is also his coronation. This is where the kingdom of God becomes a reality. Does anyone remember the sign that the Roman soldiers hang over Jesus' head? Don't spoil it, Lillian. <laughs> it's on the next slide. Um, does anyone remember what it says? Anyone want to shout it out, if you know? King of the Jews, King of the Jews. yes. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. cross is an execution that's also a coronation. It's a defeat that's also a victory. It's Jesus' lowest point, but it's also the point when he is most exalted. That's Christus victor. See, this victory metaphor, it captures the beautiful paradox at the heart of the cross, and it's one of many paradoxes that are key to our faith. As Christians, we believe in a virgin who becomes a mother, right? It's kind of an odd thing to believe. We follow a Messiah, a Savior who's been crucified. We believe that Jesus is fully human and yet fully divine. And if you really want to see some paradoxes, just look at Jesus' earliest followers. Take Peter, for example. Peter is a mess, he is a total fool. The kind of guy who leaps before he looks he's also a coward Um, he abandons jesus at his lowest point and denies that he even knew him and yet peter is also the rock on which christ builds his church or take paul paul's another good example he was a pharisee and a zealot he was a religious radical who persecuted the early church and probably wouldn't have been caught dead interacting with gentiles dirty gentiles like us But then Paul encounters the risen Jesus, and he becomes a leader in the church and a missionary to Gentiles. And we're just scratching the surface. The Bible is loaded with these paradoxes. Moses, a man with a debilitating speech impediment who becomes God's mouthpiece. Abraham and Sarah, a childless couple in their 90s who become the parents of a new nation. Esther, um, a concubine, basically a slave, who becomes queen and saves her entire people from genocide. All these beautiful contradictions in the Bible, and at the heart of it all is the cross. A defeat that's also a victory. I look around this room, and I see beautiful contradictions looking at me right now. Take me, for example. I am a uh, failed stand up comedian and preacher. Anyway, I'm not going to make a joke about that. Um, I'm also a pastor's kid who swore that I would never go into ministry because of how the church treated my mother when she was in ministry, who's now a pastor who loves the church and could not imagine doing anything else. It's a contradiction. Because of the cross, I've seen drug addicts turn their lives around and work to keep kids off the streets. I've seen people from violent homes turn away from violence and become advocates for peace. I've seen couples with with broken marriages rediscover their love and trust for each other. And at the heart of it all is the cross, a defeat that's also a victory. We are all contradictions. We're all hypocrites on some level. We're all broken. I know I am. And yet we are also God's biggest success story. The cross is a paradox. It's a test. It's a test that Jesus passed, and now it's a test for every single one of us. Put yourselves in the crowd at the foot of the cross. Do we actually believe in this kingdom, Jesus announces? Do we believe in this upside-down reality of loving enemies, dying to the self? Do we believe that, what, what Jesus announces about us, that we are beloved children of God, or do we believe all the other things that the world tries to convince us about ourselves? Do we look at the cross and see a God of violence? Or do we look at the cross and see a God of love? When you look at the cross, do you see a defeat? Or do you see a victory?
0: Thanks for listening.